This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Keith McCafferty is the survival and outdoor skills editor of Field and Stream. He's an author of eight books, winner of numerous literary awards, and just an all-round likable guy. In this episode of Anchored, we hear the story behind Keith's impressive history with Field and Stream, as well as the inspiration behind his novels and how he maintains his enthusiasm. Speaking of survival, our Survival Masterclass with Tom Brown III will be up soon. For a limited time, you can become a member of Anchored Outdoors and receive access to all of our premium content and masterclasses for only $133. Be sure to use coupon code LOYALTYCODE20 to access that low rate. Visit anchoredoutdoors.com. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Brownells. Brownells has been in business since 1939 and is a leader in firearms distribution. But Brownells carries more than just guns and ammo. They also carry binoculars, rangefinders, survival kits, and countless other tools and products. Right now, they've got an impressive list of scopes available on their site. Precision is important when out in the field, and Brownells can ensure that you're set up for accuracy and efficiency. Head on over to brownells.com. Cool. Well, let's dive right into it. Okay. Um, by the way, right before I called you, I was looking at that sample chapter on your website with the the woman and the cougar. Oh yeah, yeah. It it is that is terrifying. Does she does she die? Yeah. But but the, that's the second chapter. The first chapter is really a step by step 
re-accounting of an experience I had with two mountain lions at a place called Elkhorn Creek up the Gallatin Canyon. And uh, I was followed and growled at in the night. Uh, what has happened is I was going to, I was, I was hunting elk the day before Thanksgiving. And I saw some elk way up the hillside as it got dark, mountainside. And I tried to grow an antler on one, but uh, I couldn't. Anyway, I ended up hiking up there. And once I did that, uh, I knew that I'd be hiking out in the dark for two or three miles, which is a long way. So I walked down to where the trail uh, hits the Gallatin River. Uh, and there it goes to the right or left. And I went to the right because my cars, my truck was up there about a third of a mile. And as soon as I turned, I heard a growl, like a roar. And I thought, that's a grizzly bear and I'm dead. <laughs> then it did it again. And the second time it did it, I thought, that's a truck changing gears because across the Gallatin River, there's US 191. Then it did it a third time. And when it did that, I could see, I knew it was a cat immediately, and I could see it. It was only about eight feet in front of me, and it was lying down across the path. And then it ran up uh, the hillside uh, about 20 feet, and then it just started pacing back and forth and growling at me, and continuously growling. I remember saying, get out of here to it, because earlier in the year, I'd been bow hunting elk in another place. And I'd been exhausted. I'd been in the wilderness three days by myself. And I came out and these two big German shepherds ran at me barking, you know. And, and I was so tired. I just said, oh, get out of here. And they just turned and ran. So I remember saying this to this cat. And, and it was like I was floating above myself, looking down and thinking, you know, that didn't sound so good. It didn't have the required amount of authority this time around. <laughs> and the cat just kept following me. And finally, I turned my headlamp on because I knew as soon as I turned it on, I'd be night blind. So I turned it on. And then those eye, the eyes of the cat would reflect in the beam. And they go past something in the retina called the tacita lumina or something. And it enables the cat to have like double vision to see each thing two ways. I had never seen anything like that. It just glowed like emeralds, those eyes. And that's what happens. A green or, or a tan-eyed cat will glow red or green. Uh, a red-eyed cat or a blue-eyed cat, like a Siamese cat, will glow, glow red. But uh, I had never seen anything like that. And it's growling, and I can see those eyes whenever I catch them with my light. And I just walked and kept talking to it. And then it didn't start. Then it was uh, a little quieter. It didn't growl as much. And then I couldn't see the eyes. And then I'd look again and there were the eyes. And so now it's following me at a distance of like 10 or 12 feet, not very far, but I don't, I can't see it. So when I can't see it or hear it, I don't know where it is. And I thought, that's another third of a mile. I'm just going to back down to the Gallatin River and wade across it, which I did in the night, you know, flowing ice, anchor ice on the bottom. And then I was like, one of those women who, uh, you know, are said to be able to pick up a car if a child's under the wheel. I had tremendous adrenaline rush. And when I got to the far bank, there was actually a fence. And I just remember just kicking the post in half. And then I went to the road and a, and a trucker gave me a ride. 
And then I was afraid to walk 100 feet to my truck. I was so excited. I just, I've never been that excited. And then I had to be careful driving home that I didn't drive too fast because it's, you know, it's a bad road in the winter. And the next day I went out there with my wife, my father and old Joe Gotkowski. And what had happened was two lions had crossed the river. And as soon as they had crossed the river, they had met me on the far side. And they had an old elk kill there. Had I continued along, I would have walked within five feet of the elk kill. But when I'd gone hunting in the morning, I'd gone in before dawn and I didn't see it, you know. So I don't know what that would have done. I also was never really afraid. Uh, I had been run out of the out of the wilderness by a grizzly bear about a month before in bow season, and that terrified me. But the lions didn't. But I didn't know that there were two until the next day. Well, anyway, I wrote that account, which is really the first chapter of that book. Uh, I just changed it a little bit. Did you have a firearm on you? I did. And it was interesting. Those were the years when I only hunted with a muzzle loader. I, it never even occurred to me to shoot in the air or anything. I felt like uh, I, it had, I hadn't triggered a, an attack or reaction to that point. You know, why try, why throw something else into the mix like that? So it didn't even occur to me that I had a, had a rifle of sorts. My old muzzle loader only went off about half the time anyway, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, listen, let's start from the beginning because I know I've got people listening right now who are like, what's Keith's story? Let's, let's, let's work our way to the novel. So where were you born and raised? I was born in southeastern Ohio, across the river from uh, West Virginia, uh, across the Ohio River. And that's uh, Appalachia. And some of its deepest Appalachia, deliverance country. And I grew up in an area at times where the adult illiteracy rate was more than 30%. And there were a lot of people steeped in superstitions like my grandmother. And I was fascinated at the, by the age of four, I was fascinated with snakes. By the time I entered kindergarten, I could tell you the names of 230 snake species. In other words, every species in our country, many of them, great many of them by their Latin names as well. So I taught myself how to read with my mother's help before I went to school because I realized that adults were afraid of, you know, what they didn't understand. They didn't understand snakes. And so they were superstitious about them. They believed they were evil. And I realized at a very young age that adults don't know everything. And that the only way I could learn was to learn how to read. So I learned how to read at a very young age so I could read adult books about snakes. And uh, in a way, I always say it was like a, a quest for the truth, the first one, because I, I wanted to find out the, the truth about snakes. Uh, a few years later, my mother gave me a, a giant book of all the Sherlock Holmes stories, you know, and those two were search for the truth. And then the sort of the pivotal moment in my young life occurred when I was 10 years old. And for the first time, we drove west in an old Volkswagen van, which broke down outside of Denver. And I remember being towed into Denver and looking at these clouds above the mountains. I couldn't see mountains. And I, finally, I realized, well, that's snow. And those are the Rocky Mountains. 
Oh, it was so exciting. But our car had broken down. It took three days to fix. So my mother dropped me off at the downtown Denver Public Library. And my father had told me these stories about a man named Jim Corbett, who had hunted man-eating tigers in India. and written a very famous book about it called Man-Eaters of Kumon and a couple of other books. And I went to the library and I found Jim Corbett's book, one of them, and I read the last story in it because it was the longest and I knew I'd only had time to read one. So I read the story of the Taladesh man-eater, which I thought was the great, <laughs> that's my cat, which I thought was the greatest adventure story I had ever read. And when I walked out of there, I felt like I, I wanted to lead a life of adventure and to write about it when I walked out of the library. And years later, 50 years later, more than 50 years, I went there and retraced Jim Corbett's footsteps where he hunted the Taladesh man-eater. I didn't think that I would go on that trip because I thought that the India I wanted to see was gone, had to be gone. But it's not, because a lot of people are leaving those hilltop villages in the Himalayas for the cities, because they want to better their lives. They don't realize that they're better off being poor where they are than, you know, living in the slums. I saw that movie Slumdog Millionaire, and I remember turning to my wife saying, I never saw a slum that nice in India. Or that's a nice slum. They they bus in food and water every day. So wait, before we retrace you back to in your 60s, yeah. So you were 10 years old. You decide that you want to be an adventure writer. That's and then right. did you actually go, did you pursue that right away? No, but well, if we have time, it's one of those weird things that, you know, I, I wanted to write about it. Um, fishing. I wanted to take Al McLean's job at field and stream. He was the fishing editor later rumored to be a, you know, a cold war spy. And, uh, which was a delicious little anecdote. But my, so by the time I was in my teens, my goal in life was to meet the great Al McLean, uh, impress him in some way, marry his daughter, who was about my age. And there were, I'd seen photographs of her. She was a beautiful young woman. I don't know how old we were then, 14, 15. And, uh, and and meet Al McLean and go fishing with him and then take his job as the editor, of, fishing editor of Field Stream. So a few years went by and I did start to write uh, outdoor articles for magazines and particularly for Field Stream. And my colleagues there knew that I had this great admiration for Al McLean, who was the editor emeritus at that time and wasn't in the offices. All. So they arranged for me with Al that I could, that I would meet him outside of Ennis on the Madison River because every year he'd stay in one of those little cabins there for a month or so. And I thought, well, how can I impress the great Al McLean? Well, he could do something that very few people could do. He could take a 90 foot fly line, you know, a whole fly line. And he could, uh, he could cast the whole thing without a rod, just with his hands. Not very many people in the world can do that, but I could because I taught myself in order to impress Al McLean. <sighs> My father gave me like an eight and a half foot fiberglass rod. And all you do is you just keep whacking a few inches off of it at a time until you've got a, until you're casting the whole fly line with 10 inches of line. 
And then you can just throw it, you know, throw the rod away and just use your hands. And I was supposed to meet him in early June, I believe it was. And he died. Oh, no. Sort of unexpectedly. He did have some form of cancer, but I, I didn't know that. Uh, nobody at Field and Stream knew that, that I knew of. So I never met Al McLean. I never impressed him. I never married his daughter. I never took his job. But what I'll tell people is, but I came close. <laughs> you know, I, in the sense that I wrote, I don't know, 1,500 articles and counting for Field and Stream alone. It's the world record, except for maybe David Petzl now that the Internet's there. But it's like 1,500 articles. I wrote one last week for Field and Stream. So I still keep my hand in that way. Uh, and I find it's very valuable because I can do a sort of a long uh, narrative piece. And it's like a little building block. It's like a, a piece of carpentry. And people will see it and they'll say, oh, that's, you know, very good and all this. And it'll, re it'll remind me that I can do this because when you're just writing the novels, there's always a little voice in your ear telling you, oh, you can't do this. You're too old, you know. And it takes so long to write a novel that you very much prey to those self-doubts. So if you break that up once in a while to do something positive, like writing a longer article, I find it's, it's very valuable uh, to take back to the novel. But so... Can I ask uh, you something before you continue, Keith? Oh, yeah, sure. I've heard a few writers say that, you know, about, am, am I too old for this? And it's such a peculiar yeah. statement to me because when a runner says that, it makes sense. When a hunter says that, it makes sense. But as a writer, doesn't it just get better with age? Well, you know, uh, Michael Connolly, a writer I very much admire, he believes that too. As long as your brain is still functioning, you should be getting better every, every time out. And I know that I used to say, a book a year, every book better than the last one. That was my mantra. Write a book a year, everyone better than the one before it. And I think I did that to the, to at least to Crazy Mountain Kiss, which won a lot of awards. And I don't know if I can do much better than, the, than those next few books that followed that. But still, the, the fact that I can do it doesn't remove that doubt when you're in the process of it. I, what I find is as long as I'm working, then I say, Oh, I can do this. It's when I'm not working in the evening or whenever, in the middle of the night, that's when I fall prey to all these, you know, all these voices in my head. And I think a lot of writers, if they're honest, that they have self-doubts as well, at least good writers. Uh, I think there's a lot of very poor writers who are extremely confident in their abilities. <laughs> but, you know, I, I became the outdoor skills and survival editor of Field and Stream. Technically, I think I still am. At least I'm on the masthead that way. You know, they wanted me in the magazine every week, every month, which I was already. If you look at the February 2008 issue of Field and Stream, I have eight articles with my name on them and two more that don't have my name. But, you know, this is sort of digressing. But back in the day, if I wrote more than one or two articles for Field and Stream, they would want the third one under a pseudonym. They didn't want to look like I did the whole magazine. So I had to come up with a pseudonym. So my character in my books is Sean Stranahan. Well, that was my pseudonym when I wrote Younger. And the first time I used it was not at Field and Stream. It was uh, I was in graduate school at the University of Michigan. And uh, there was a literary contest, a writing contest. And I entered it. 
and you had to use a pseudonym. So I took the last name of Mike Stranahan, a friend of mine, and and Sean, because I liked the name, not even knowing how to pronounce it. Seen. I thought it was pronounced seen. Anyway, I won. And my prize was to drive like an hour upstate and stay in this guy's house that night. And the next day, go hunt uh, snowshoe rabbits on snowshoes with a basset hound. So that was my first literary prize. <laughs> and years later, I was lucky enough to uh, to win the uh, Western Writers of America Spur Award, which is a very prestigious award. And uh, I remember I had to talk to all these bigwigs, you know, I had to, had to give a little talk, you know. And so I told them that story. I said, well, you know, as great as the uh, as the uh, Spur Award is, my my favorite award is still, you know, the, the Basset Hound. <laughs> anyway. You know, what parts of that are me? And, you know, I'm like most writers. I draw I draw from various people. When I had a, I had, at the second chapter of my first book, The Royal Wolf Murders, I had to have a sheriff. Well, I didn't know whether the sheriff would be a man or a woman or anything. I didn't know a thing. And I sat there, and within five minutes, I had her name, Martha Attinger, uh, Karen Enninger was my best friend growing up. So all I did was steal Karen's name, change the letters one way. And then Martha, I, I pictured her. I pictured a pig farmer I knew, a woman who was a pig farmer on the Yellowstone River, who was a cowboy poet. And I just subtracted 35 or 40 years. And I've, well, that was her. So I had her and I had her backstory. I had all that within five minutes. And it was a combination of two or three people. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen all the time. You know, that was that was a rarity. Uh, or my my crusty old fishing guide, Sam Rainbow, Sam Sam Meslick. That that was based on a couple people I know. You know, that disclaimer at the front of novels saying that uh, you know this is a work of fiction and this and that. That's the biggest lie in fiction. <laughs> <laughs> of course, those people are based on somebody or part bits and pieces of somebody. You know. But anyway, they made me this the survival at, and uh, I tell people I was Bear Grylls before there was Bear Grylls, you know, the survivalist, because they do things like drop me off at the top of a mountain in December or in November and have me walk out, you know, do a, a survival exercise. And we're in nothing, you know, zero degree temperatures. So I remember one night. It was supposed to be three three nights of survival. The first night I was supposed to survive in a debris hut, which if you know what that is, is just the duff and dirt and leaves underneath a spruce tree. And that didn't work. You know, <laughs> I was up walking around all night long, just walking in circles, trying to stay warm, you know, and I do push ups every minute or two, you know, so I survived. This wasn't fun. The next night, I had a six foot by six foot tarp, not very big. I could do with it whatever I wanted, but I couldn't build a fire. That wasn't in the rules. And uh, so at one point I just wrapped up in the tarp, tried to trap body heat, you know, and, and I had to pee in the middle of the night. So I decided, well, I'm gonna like knee to the edge of the tarp and pee in the snow. And of course I ended up peeing on the tarp. And then I had to wrap back up in the tarp <laughs> and I remember telling myself, it was really true. I remember telling myself, I'm getting too old for this. I'm going to write that novel I always wanted to write. <laughs> and so I went home and I started writing that novel, The Royal Wolf Murders. 
But wait, so who, who was dropping you off in the middle of the bush, though? This is Field and Stream? Oh, they just dropped me. Dro- friend just dropped me off with a, a snowmobile. But was that, do they still do stuff like that? I mean, I thought Field and Stream and, and magazines nowadays, obviously they have staff writers and they, they subcontract people, but I didn't think that they were actually responsible for taking a man or a writer and throwing them in the bush and saying, here, I hope you make it. Oh yeah. 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 They did it. And not only that, that was before we had spot messengers or personal locator beacons or GPS. And so there was no way for me to communicate with anybody. I was, there was no such thing as cell phones for that matter. But, but what was the purpose so that you could write an article about it? So I could write an article about, surviving three nights in the wilderness using these different techniques. Right. And had you had any training before or were they just like, here's something we heard. Not, not, go figure yeah, it out. yeah. Uh, I had written, I had written about survivalists before and spent time with them, you know? So uh, I had uh, some survival skills. The truth is they wanted me in the magazine a lot. And they didn't really have anybody who could do survival like that. So they decided on me. But the, really what happened was there was this young woman. Oh, well, I can't remember her name right now. But she was uh, the se- senior editor at Field and Stream. Kathy Myers was her name. And Dave Petzl was a shooting editor. And he interviewed her for the job. And he said, drop and give me 50. So she dropped and gave him 50 push-ups. She was a personal trainer. You know, she could, she was tough. She told Pestle, she said, how can I be the senior editor of Field and Stream and I've never seen a campfire? She said, I want to go out to see Keith McCafferty in Montana and go hunting with him. That'll give me some, okay. So they send her out and I meet her and she's terrified of me terrified yet here she is with this strange man and we're putting on backpacks and we're hiking into the wilderness we're gonna my brother's supposed to meet up with us on like the fourth day at a little lake and we go up there and we start hiking in the evening and i bugle by bugling for an elk nothing but what i did is i set the bugle down and i forgot it so we hike up and it's almost dark and i say kathy I left my bugle down the trail. I'm going to run back and get it. I thought it was only like a couple hundred yards. It's a long way. I found my bugle. I sort of ran back up there. She's just shaking. There's a herd of elk around her. It's after dark. She's in the wilderness, and she's never seen a campfire. She's never been out of the city in her life. And I left her. (sighs) And I left her. She thinks she's going to die. She thinks she's going to die. So I said, Kathy, let's, I had a little shelter, you know, a little wheeling shelter. I call it a little piece of tarp. So I made that and we had a a little campfire going. She lit a candle. She lit a candle. I said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to sleep here downwind and maybe we can get into those elk tomorrow morning, you know. At this point, elk hunting is the last thing on her mind. She's just thinking about surviving. So we had one of those little butane cookers, you know, with a little ring of fire. And she's got a candle going. And I think that the canister is empty, but it's not empty. And so I unscrewed it. 
and it just starts shooting, you know, propane around. It catches the fire from the candle, and now it's shooting like 10 or 15 feet into the air, and it just slowly, over the course of a minute, dies down. And I look at Kathy, and she's just white as she can be. And I said something, that's what Hemingway called grace under pressure. (laughs) But I had kicked it out, you know. Now she's terrified of me. I don't think she said one word to me in the next day. And then we had we met my brother, and uh, he came in the wilderness and joined us. Then he said, first of all, he's a doctor. He's very practical. First of all, she's got a she's five foot nothing, and she's got a practice for people from you know five nine to six two. She's got like seventy pounds in there. She's got one of the first cell phones ever made, and. Uh, like five liters of Diet Coke. <laughs> anyway, so Kevin immediately starts, she falls in love with my brother. And anyway, when when the ordeal of the trip was over, she went back to New York and she said, I think you should get Keith McCafferty to write like a health and safety column or survival and outdoor skills. And, and he can use his brother as an expert in medicine because my brother's a doctor. So the truth was she fell in love with my brother. And because of that, I ended up being the survival editor of Field and Stream. (laughs) (laughs) Did anything ever happen with that? Did they have a relationship? No, no. He was married. Oh, okay. No, there was nothing there. No, no, not like that. Yeah. And, and of course, Kathy loved it. She was the greatest adventure of her life. And then her, her husband was a Wall Street guy, and he ended up, Leaving anyway, they left town and she quit working at Field and Stream. But because of her, that's how I became one of the editors at Field and Stream with a regular column. That is too good. <laughs> <laughs> but how did you end up in Montana? Well, uh, I was from Appalachia, like I said, southeastern Ohio. And this is one of those cases where one little thing can change your life. I wanted to become a writer, an outdoor writer. And I thought I'd be, I'd learn, I'd have a foundation in fisheries biology. So I get a master's degree in fisheries biology. And they took me at University of Michigan in the master's program. And anyway, at a certain point, the guy in charge says, well, this, you know, why don't this summer you go up to Pelston to the, to what they called the bug station and you can get started on a thesis. Just go down the stairs here, go out across the street, go up and see Mark Paddock because he runs the biological station and he can get you in there. So I went and saw Mark Paddock. I talked to him for 20 minutes, and he said, you don't want to be a fisheries biologist. You want to be a writer. Go down these stairs, go across the street, and go up and talk to Charles Eisendrath. He's in charge of the master's program in, in, in uh, journalism. So I did, and I, became, and I started in the journalism school. And so what happened was, after the first semester, Charles thought that I was, of his 12 students, I had I was the most mature, which was ridiculous, but he could trust me with an internship in Bakersfield, California. So I drove all the way across the country to an internship in Bakersfield, and that's where I met my wife. And at that point, I said, you know, I wanted to be an editor of Field and Stream, and I was already west, so it wasn't that huge of a a thing to you know move to move up to Montana where I'd want, always wanted to be, you know, since a little, since I was a little boy. I'd had a write for my teacher once, what are the three places you'd like to, to live? And I wrote, India, Africa, and Montana. <laughs> and Montana was the most practical of the three. Yeah. 
But it's interesting. So I was a I was a crime writer basically in California in newspaper work. And then I one thing that's interesting about becoming a novelist is that they don't teach you is how lonely or how different it is from other forms of writing. When I always say the best job I ever had was as a crime reporter because I knew I had my finger on the pulse of the city. You know, I knew everything that was going on. I knew all the cops, district attorney. I knew all the stories. I knew all the stories that weren't in the paper and why. And I was talking to people all the time in the newsroom out in the city. Then I started becoming a full-time magazine writer. And now all of a sudden I'm only talking to people once or twice a week, maybe interviewing somebody. Then you become a novelist, all of a sudden you've really stepped back. And now you have almost no communication with people at all. You'd start talking to dogs and cats, you know. So anyway, that's one of those things that you don't know until you're immersed in it. And in order to write about people, if you're a full-time novelist like I was, you've sort of divorced yourself from people. So when people are saying, well, how's this quarantine affect you? So, well, I didn't know there was a quarantine, you know. It's been my life for several years anyway. Well, that was one of the big questions I wanted to ask you, not about the quarantine, well, about the mindset of being a fiction writer or just about being a novelist in general. How do you bring yourself back to quote unquote real life? Because when you're in your head like that for that long, Mm -hmm. in that depth, it's a totally different world. And to snap yourself back out of it, I mean, when I get into that state, I'm forced to snap back out of it because I have a daughter. I've got, I have to get back into sure. real life and she forces me to go out and talk to people. But for you, especially now, how do you snap yourself out of that mindset and come back to life? Boy, that's a good question. No, I don't think anybody's asked me that before. I, I don't think I have as much problem with that as some writers because I'm a pretty social person. A lot of writers like on book tours, they don't really like it, enjoy it, you know. I actually do. I don't like flying around, but I I like talking to people. I can remember people say, when's that empty nest syndrome kick in? Well, it kicks in the day that your youngest child leaves for whatever reason. And my daughter went off to college. My son had already gone. And I came back to the house and it was so quiet. I think I had a snake and cat, whatever, still too quiet, you know. So I started working outside, like working uh, on a bridge over a river or uh, coffee shops in the morning. So I had this little bit of social life around me, these people that would go to the coffee shops. And I knew a lot of them. And I've never been one of those writers who has to have perfect isolation. I like a little bit of humanity around me. And I like to wear... uh, Glasses that so that everything farther than 30 inches away is a little fuzzy. So I can have the benefit of having people around me and sort of a murmur. But I've really still created my own little cocoon. And so I know people will say, well, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to disturb you. You know, you've been so looked so busy for the next two hours. But to me, sometimes it's like, well, it's only been 10 minutes. But it feels but they say it's two hours and they're right. So I obviously I am able to divorce myself in that way, but I seem to go back and forth. You know, somebody will come in, hey Keith, you know, and I'll say hi to them for a few seconds, a minute. I think the isolation is at certain times if you're not feeling good about yourself, that that can be a problem. 
But coming back to so-called reality or conversely entering into that world, entering into the world is that world is easy as long as I've st- already started the book because I just rewrite the first the you know several pages before and, and then continue on. So I'm pretty into it. So that doesn't that doesn't bother me. When I started, you know, what I wanted to do was uh, I had this character Sean Stranahan, I had Martha Ettinger, and I just wanted to surround myself with people that I would like to hang out with, because in a way it was an escape from what I was doing at Field and Stream. There'd be three or four times a year at Field and Stream where I was writing these long narrative pieces or something I really loved doing, and and for which I you know got National Magazine awards. I I enjoyed you know that aspect of it. Anyway, it's it's a strange profession, and another thing you don't realize is. Once you reach three books, you're always working on three books at once because you're publicizing one that's been published. You're in the publishing process for another, which is about nine or ten months. And then meanwhile, you're supposed to be writing a third book. Well, how, how many novels did you write? You wrote eight, eight I've books? written eight novels and a couple of uh, nonfiction books in addition to 1,500 or so articles. But writing a novel a year is very, very difficult obviously. But in a way, the alternative, writing a book every two or three years is worse because the publishing world naturally revolves around a a one-year cycle. There's a time when the critics weigh in. There's a time when um, the award season, if you're lucky enough to be up for an award or something. If you're on that once-a-year publishing process, you are... um, you are engaged with the editors or your agent or whoever on a fairly regular basis. You know, they're always checking in because the book that's being in production, well, you know, there's cover design. There's all kind. There's always stuff. It keeps you a little involved. If you wait and only do a book every two, three or four years, as a lot of writers do, man, that's a lot of time to be alone and have those doubts start to prey upon you. And also to feel like, well, your publisher, all those people have forgotten about you. Well, I'll tell you one thing, your your reading public gets mad at you. You know, where's that next book? And if you don't get it, some guy called me up, you know, I, you were my favorite writer. He says, now you're my fourth favorite writer. Because a book wasn't coming out soon enough and they were milking the hardcover sales for as much as they could before they'd let it out in soft cover, which is all he could afford. Anyway, he was pissed at me. <laughs> but uh, so I think it's really hard to isolate yourself and only come out with a book every few years. Not to mention as you know, business wise, that's not, not necessarily a good thing to do. Coming up, Keith and I continue our conversation. Again, thank you to Brownells for making this episode possible. I never knew how important optics were until I started hunting. From scopes to rangefinders and binoculars, Brownells is a one-stop shop for hunters of all experience levels. Check them out at brownells.com and keep them in mind when it comes to making your next big purchase. Is there any money to be made as a best-selling author and also as a uh, as a writer who's had their work go to screen? Well, since I don't have anything gone to screen, I know that that's Basically, what happens is, you, is, is you, somebody will option your book. When they option it, it's often for five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. But options can go much higher. 
And then, you know, to somebody like Steven Spielberg, well, that's a nickel. And then you're getting paid for doing nothing. Uh, they're just optioning it. And then when the option comes up in six months or a year, you just re-up the option. We'll keep them on the hook for another year. So a number of writers make a fair amount of money uh, just on the options of their books, the vast majority of which never, ever make it to the screen. They used to say, well, what's the difference between suspense and thriller? Well, it's $200,000. That's the difference. Because <laughs> right. thriller novels make the most money. Suspense is second most. Mystery books make the hardest to write well, make the, the least as a general rule. But there's now, you know, there's a lot of intergradation. You know, they're not strictly this or that anymore necessarily. But it's not certainly not a uh, a job to make a lot of money at necessarily. I remember my agent before he took me on. He says, "Yeah, now you may just want to be a fisherman." You know, he said, even really good established writers who have a name, they're still not making more than you know fifty thousand dollars for a book or something. So uh, to tell you the truth, at least for a while there, I, I I made more money writing magazine articles. Because I lived through a couple little mini golden ages of magazine writing, and I just wrote my could write my own ticket. If I wanted to be on the road hunting and fishing 365 days a year, I could have done it. The work was there. How, how much money you made was only limited by how much work you wanted to take on. That's no longer true. So in this very weird way, I you know I tell people I traded a a job where. The, People tell you it's very difficult to make a living for one where they assure you it's impossible. <laughs> but at the same time, the magazine industry really took a sharp no nosedive 14 years ago with the recession and never really recovered. So the career I had, especially at Field and Stream, it just simply can't be duplicated now. It's just not there anymore. Uh, magazine may not even be around three or four more years, you know. So in this very weird way, I like switched gears or switched to becoming a novelist at the right time. And for a long time, I, I'd tell myself, well, I've got children to put through college. And so I couldn't afford to be a novelist because I'd be making more money. I could make, I mean, you know, occasionally ten, twelve thousand $12,000 an article. Well, that's... What? That's a first book. That's the advance for a lot of people's first book. So I could write one article and but would take up 10 pages in the well of field and stream. I'd be paid ten to $12,000. And that would happen once a year. So it was hard for me to say, well, I'm going to give this up and become a novelist, especially when I have children in college. But that's when I started writing the, uh, the Royal Wolf Murders, my first book, sort of on the side, you know, catching time. What ha happened was I... You know, I'd work on it a couple of weeks and then reality would set in and I'd have to go back to work in for Field and Stream and two months would pass. And then I'd go back and steal two more. And finally, it's not the best way to write it, you know, right? Because I'd have to start from scratch again almost every time. <laughs> but I finally did it. And a friend of mine at Field and Stream, Jean McKenna, who's a managing editor, her old uh, college roommate worked in a publishing house in New York. And anyway, she gave me the list of four or five agents. And she said, well, you probably can't get Dominic Abel. He only takes a person once every four or five years, which is true. Said, what do I have to lose, you know? So anyway, Dominic 
was very interested in my first book. He just wanted me to change something plot-wise. And I felt bad because I didn't. And I didn't hand it back into him. And then a year went by, and he wrote me this nice note saying, uh, as I've not heard back from you, I assume you've gone in a different direction, best of luck and all that. Well, then I got, uh, I became a finalist for a National Magazine Award. And I got to go to the Lincoln Center, dress up in a tuxedo and all that. And Field and Stream put me up at a hotel on the Upper West Side. And I looked out the door or I went to the door of the hotel and next across the street was Dominic Abel's literary agency. And I didn't have the courage to knock on the door because I had not got back to him and changed that book. But that gave me the impetus to go home and to start and rewrite that book in earnest. And that's what I did. Um, and that's how that's how that book got you know written, basically. And did you ever did it get back into Dominic's hands? Yeah. Oh, that is. What he did was he say delighted to see it. You know, he said, <laughs> I just sent it to him cold, you know, and we went back a few fourth a, a little bit and I re rewrote little other parts of it. Basically, the first book you write for your agent after that, you're writing it for your editor and publisher, a good agent. I mean, the, it's like well, the way, way he gets the book deal done is he calls his old friend, Catherine Court, who's the publisher and president of Penguin. And says, oh, you know, I think I've got this writer you'd like. They sit down and have lunch, and two days later, you know, they're just dealing with contract issues, you know. So, you know, I I got got in very easily uh, because you know my agent was well connected. It wouldn't just be that he was well connected, Keith. She must have realized that your writing is, you know, you write. Oh yeah, yeah, pictures. yeah. It's interesting how good of a writer you are, word-for-word uh, for word writers. Unfortunately, it's not as important as I'd like it to be. She would say to me, she says, you're a really fine writer, but, and the but hangs in the air, but the only thing that really matters is the story, the characters, and the appeal of that. Do you map out your entire plot first, or do you just go? I, I just go. Uh, I'm what's called a muddler thrower. That's what my agent calls me. So what I have is I have the idea, I have a what hopefully is a very strong opening scene, which is often something that really happened. And I often will have an idea for the ending. That leaves 280 pages in the middle. I don't have a clue what's going on. Uh, and I have friends C.J. Box is one, Craig Johnson's another, Margaret Cole. They map out those their books very diligently so that it's an exaggeration, but they pretty much have every paragraph mapped out. And Chuck Box will say, oh, you know, when times get tough, I hold to that outline like a lifeline. I wish I could sometimes, but I don't seem to be able to. So the best I can hope for is that strong opening scene. And and, and hopefully I'll have a theme, like a, a backdrop issue to play a smaller, more human story against it, sort of like copper mining in a death in, in Eden or in Cold Hearted River, the, the specter of Ernest Hemingway or whirling disease in, world, in the Royal Wolf murders or the mountain lions in this book or the effects of, of meddling in nature. So I'll have that if I'm lucky. And then I just have to 
keep going and keep telling myself you've done this before you can do it again you've done it seven times you can do it you can do it this you know it's supposed to be hard but it's really hard hardest hardest work i've ever done and i've been a driller <laughs> earlier on you said that you'd been chased out by a grizzly a month after the cougar attack what happened there well, I was bow hunting elk, and I was specifically hunting this one elk, which was an old, uh, an old white white antlered bull past his prime, what we call satellite bull. At that point, he's no, you know being pushed out of the herd by the herd bull, but they'll hang around, and he would sneak in without bugling, without making a sound. If I tooted like a, well, what I was trying to sound like was a young bull who might have. A, cow, a couple a couple cows, and maybe he could come in and squeeze one off, you know, tweeze one off. And so I would bugle, and then I would run forward across this rock scree and into this thicket, sort of set up there in a little ditch, and hope that the bull would just come along, not make a sound, just sneak in, and I'd get a shot. Well, this time I bugled, and I got ready to run forward, and instead <laughs> I heard the a bear start growling. I knew what it was right away. And it it showed itself to me. And it would do the bear thing. It would stand up, like, sort of like looking, because, you know, they have very poor eyesight. Then it would drop down. It would run to one side. Then it would come back to the middle. And it would get up and look again. And it would run to the other side and come back. And all the time is growling and chopping his teeth. And that, the teeth, they call it popping, chopping, that sound is scarier than hell. And I've heard a tiger roar, but that's scary. And uh, I just started to back away, back away, back away. It didn't come any closer. It was still demonstrating. And finally, I got behind trees. This was before uh, pepper spray or anything, you know. And I walked all the way across the canyon big canyon and climbed up because I thought I told myself if I leave the mountains now, I'll, I'll be afraid to ever go back in. So I'll keep hunting. I'll just go to this other side of the canyon. I went to the other side of the canyon, bugled once and the bear started growling at me from across the canyon. I thought, okay, that's it. I'm leaving. And I left. <laughs> but you know, and that was in my mind when I had was, uh, confronted by the two mountain lions. There was a big difference. I was not afraid of the lion. I didn't know that about the elk kill. I didn't know there were two lions. But the one lion, I was very excited, but I wasn't really afraid. But the bear, I was scared to death. But that was in the days when there were very, very human, few human fatalities from mountain lion in North America. Now there are quite a few more over the past 15, 20 years. It's still, yeah, why do you think still that? very rare? Well, there's there's a number of reasons, but uh, they're basically pushed to the fringe of their habitat. You know, as as man encroaches upon them, the older established toms push the younger toms into fringe ranges, and the younger toms that might be a river valley with second homes there. You know, people having homes, so they get used to seeing people. They see children. Big difference. I like those children, extremely interested in those children. And they become curious. They stalk people. And maybe at some point 
they might attack somebody, especially if they're emaciated or whatever. Almost always, the attacking lion is a uh, a young male that's been driven to the fringes of terror. So you can almost map it uh, if there's a if there's a if there's an aggression aggressive encounter with a lion, whether or not it ends in an attack, and you're uh, in an area where there are second homes or where things have been built up or habitat's been destroyed, almost always a young male. If you have an encounter in the wilderness back in, almost always an adult female. And that's simply because there are more, there are more females. Plus females with cubs can be very possessive, you know. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't make the lions be a bad, bad people in the books at all. I love those lions. I, and I've been lucky. I've encountered uh, seven lions now. That's a, that's a lot. That's a lot. And most people, most people, most houndsmen who've treated maybe 200 lion, maybe 300 lion have never, ever seen one without the benefit of their hounds, you know. It happens more often now as 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 lions become more suburban, especially in places like Los Angeles. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Keith, I just have a couple more questions for you. Of all of the oh, sorry. of all of the survival skills that you know, which one <laughs> which one has which is the one that you would recommend most people learn? Well, one thing is gonna be surprising. One thing I think people should do is whenever they go out, they should have a picture of their loved ones. Because I, you know, I have interviewed people who their specialty is lost person behavior. People who have trouble, who become lost in the wilderness. And almost always the ones that will survive will say they just kept on looking at that photograph. And that gave them the the will to carry on and to say, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. And they would refer to that photograph. So I would always advise people to have that photograph. But, you know, you can survive anything with, you know, the, the shelter and the uh, fire. Um, the problem is mo- if you really need to, to build fire, usually conditions are, are really bad and it's very difficult to do. Like when I was hunting last week with my son, we're hunting in a rainforest. Mm-hmm. The idea of building a fire there is just ludicrous. It's just not going to happen. Everything is just rotting wood. Six or eight inches of moss on top of everything, dripping lichen. It's a rainforest. You can't start fire. So what I always would tell people is you should be, depending on your skill level, you should carry everything in your pack that you need to survive a couple days without building a fire. Because you, because a lot of times you aren't just simply aren't going to be able to get it going. But it's interesting, you know, lost person behavior is a very interesting subject because, you know, people go through five or six, seven stages. Almost everybody goes through the same stages. But at a certain point, the sort of will to live really comes into play, really does. And then it's the people who, you know, rely on, you know, thoughts or I will get back home and I will do this and do that. I'll make it. And everybody's susceptible to it. I mean, I am. My good friend Joe Gakoski, who's 94 now, spent all his time and all his life in the wilderness. You know, he he is even. So, and now, especially that we lean on all these uh, crutches, we lean on all these electrical electrical gadget crutches, basically, that if those are taken away from us, if you lose your GPS or the batteries die or it doesn't work because there's a magnet interfering with it, you don't know, or uh, 
like or my son went out and gave was supposed to send us spot messages where he was. He thought he was doing fine for three days out bow hunting alone. None of those spot messages came through. So that gadgetry will fail you sometimes. And when it does, that leaves people like emotionally naked. Now they don't know what to do without that. You know, I grew up in the, in the hills and hollows and Appalachia and dense thickets. And, and I credit that with like, well, feel like I'll never lost. I'm just sort of misplaced, you know, I'll always get out. But then I've, you know, not had the gadget or something not work and feel like, Oh shit, you know? So even I'm susceptible to it. So I think, you know, relying on those kind of crutches is dangerous too. You know, basic survival skills are important, including map and compass, you know. Well, Keith, what's next for you? Well, the last thing I did with my mother before she died was I read her a book I'd started writing and written about a third of, of uh, about children growing up in Appalachia, a fiction book. And I've sort of promised her and myself that I would I would finish that book. So to me, that's my priority right now, more so than writing another series novel, although I know I will end up doing that. Otherwise, I'll, you know, it's interesting. The readers come to mean a lot to you. You know, I, I have relationships with literally hundreds of readers, some of which write to me dozens of times. And I used to think, if Field and Stream, see, um, the magazine stood between you and the readers, and you didn't get much interaction. Then I started writing the novels, and all of a sudden you get a lot of attention for books that um, really very few people read compared to the magazines. But it's out there. Anyway, and it becomes very important to you, because if you get a little positive note from somebody, and I encourage everybody to write to me, and then I get, get their addresses and I send them postcards and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, one little note like that can keep you going for the rest of the day. You know, this person doesn't think you're waking, wasting your time, you know. And I never I never anticipated the, how much the readers would come to mean to me. I've got a guy right now who's a master bamboo rod craftsman, Mike Harrell. And he's because I wrote to him and talked back and forth with him. He said, you know, I'm, I want to build you a bamboo rod. He won't take no for it. So we've been going back and forth. He sent me hundreds of photos and we're down to, he's down to wrapping it. So hopefully I'll be able to fish with it a little bit this fall. Well, Mike's how I found how I met you. Th that's right. Right. That's right. Yeah. He's Mike's, great. He's like Santa Claus. He's yeah. like Santa Claus <laughs> with his beard and his hair. And, and he said, you know, he was in touch with you and, um, he said, if you don't mind, I'll give you, you know, her, your number, and maybe you two can get together. So, well, sure. It's been great. Yeah, thanks, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Although I thought you were going to be in British Columbia this time of year, but I guess you got driven out by ash and fires and COVID. No, huh? COVID, yeah. We were there and then had to flee in, end of March because uh, we weren't sure if I'd be able to get back in. Actually, we got it right as the border was closing. I wasn't going to be able to get back in. And I'm looking at going back now, but old Colby here isn't uh, doing so well. So we're going to just stick around for a bit. So Keith, on your website, um, it looks like I could buy, like we can buy your books on your website direct. Is that right? Uh, you can get Madison River Liars and Fly Tires hats. People can 
get all my books through the, the regular suspects like Amazon, which I think a lot of people do. My books aren't directly available on the website, but they may be in the future, you know. I have a couple of bookstores in this country, three in particular, that always have big stocks of my books, most of them signed. And the uh, country bookshelf in Bozeman, only a mile from where I live, anybody who wants me to personalize and sign a book and then put a, I'll put a postcard in it and I'll put a photo in it and I'll do all kinds and they can just call the country bookshelf, which I think is 406-587, I don't know, 0166, something like that. But it's the country bookshelf in Bozeman. And so they'll always have my books and then they just call me and say, there's a book to be signed and I'll just walk down and uh, sign it and put in postcard and all that stuff. I love so it. That's the easiest. That's a lot easier than me trying to set up my website to to sell directly. Well, I'll I'll include all the links and all the write ups there. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, before we wrap it up, Keith, is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me? Yeah, I've asked you. Uh, how did you get started? Is is your uh, blog site or whatever I, I looked it up is it is mostly you and your husband doing that right what's that oh my husband and I don't do anything together uh, your <laughs> site. raise a daughter and fish what's that um, yeah so my website is anchoredoutdoors.com and right. it's all me and that's all you and that's all the blogs and you have some merchandise stuff I saw and a little bit of yeah. yeah. So well, no, I, I did. I looked. Well, I shouldn't say it's all. I've got um, all of my contributors are people who have been on the show, uh, or people you know who I really respect in the outdoor in the outdoor industry or the outdoor world. I don't do a lot of writing myself these days, just because I'm trying to manage members and contributors. But yeah, it's a membership website that's really put the podcast into life. And our big focus these days is really our, our master classes. That's just taking up a huge chunk of time. And, wh and what is that? So taking, master yeah. So taking a class, like one that we're doing right now is, you know, Bob Clay, the rod builder. He's a rod builder. Yeah. And, yeah. So he's doing one for us yeah, right Kispiox now. Kispiox River. That's right. He's in the Kispiox. Yeah. So we're filming. He makes bamboo spay rods. That's right. So we're doing a master class with him. So my cameraman's there right now. And oh, cool. from start to finish, right? So the master classes really, it lets you watch all the chapters and learn alongside Bob. So really what, what the perk yeah. is and what the advantage is to the website is you don't need to, to question if the people on there are the real deal and, uh, and you can trust mm -hmm. their, their knowledge and, and really have an amazing support system. So I met Mike. Daryl. Yeah. He, uh, who you mentioned earlier, he is a member of Anchored Outdoors. Okay. And so we really get this amazing community and, and we learn together and yeah, I just, I, it's my favorite project so far. Well, that's pretty neat. I'd like to have one of Bob Clay's rods. I bet you would. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a few spay rods. <laughs> I got nothing to fish for, but I've got a few spay. Have you um, been to BC? Oh Yeah. Uh, I used to fish the Maurice or Morris and the Balkley and fish the Kispiox. Um, the Thompson was my favorite river. Me too. Did you see my book, Cold Hearted Mountain? No. Uh, Cold Hearted River? That's my quote Hemingway book because I used to, uh, I used to fish with Ernest Hemingway's oldest son, Jack. We were colleagues at Field and Stream 
And that was our favorite river was the Thompson. Jack was a really good steelhead fisherman. And one day we were fishing the graveyard, which is a very yes, famous run. I love run. the graveyard run. Fishing the graveyard. It's, it's just me and Jack. And and I'd known Jack for a few years, but I, I never once mentioned his famous father, you know. I just didn't, you know. So we were fishing, and I'm down at the tail out of the graveyard. And at one point, I came back up, and we just, you know, hopscotch, you know, go one guy go down and up above the other one, and, you know. And it, for some weird reason, we were the only two people fishing the graveyard all day long, and because uh, it can be popular. And I came back up past Jack, and he said, "You know," he said you should be fishing another 15, 20 feet down. You know, he says, those fish, you know, you're not fishing far enough into the tail out. So the next time I went down, late afternoon by now, I think, sure enough, I had a tug, you know, and I thought, I know it's a steelhead, but it wouldn't come back. I went back and I taught, you know, past Jack. And I said, Jack, I think I had a tug down there. He He went down and he caught that fish. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I helped him tail it. I tailed it. It was about 15-pound hen, big fish, you know. And we let it go. And at that point, I had a, a little thing of scotch uh, or uh, schnapps, a little flask of schnapps and hot, hot chocolate in honor of my dad. And so we shared that on the bank, you know. And I maybe it was the schnapps, I don't know. But I said to Jack, you know, I said, you think your dad would have liked this kind of fishing, you know? You know, where it's a good day is a day you don't drown on the Thompson. And um, he said, oh, yeah, I think he'd like the challenge of it. And uh, he said, Papa liked to say, uh, used to like to say that all true stories end in death. I think he'd like the idea of fishing below a graveyard because, you know, the graveyard is just up on the hill. Then he said more seriously, he said, but uh, he said, my dad lost all interest in like fly fishing and freshwater when all of his gear was stolen en route by train from basically Miami to uh, Sun Valley, Idaho, he had a steamer trunk with all his fishing gear in it that disappeared and was never found. And I've talked to Patrick, his second son, and he says, said, yeah, he said, it had all this, uh, you know, all this hardy equipment in it. And he says, I don't know what else was in there. There could have been manuscript in there worth $50,000, $500,000, priceless, really. So I thought, that's interesting. But at the time, I was more interested in catching a steelhead than, than writing about it. And so years went by, like 20 years, more than that, 30 years. And my wife, who's a journalist, was going to write a story about, uh, Searching for Hemingway treasure in Yellowstone country. Yeah. And I went down because he spent five long summers and falls at the El Barty guest ranch outside of Cook City from 1930 to 1940. And, uh, and, di- and wrote parts of For Whom the Bell Tolls and many of his favorite four different novels. Anyway, very prolific time in his life, his career. And, uh, we could still see the cabin where he stayed. You can't, you're not allowed to visit it, but you can see it. And Gail said, my wife said, you know, you should work this into one of your books somehow, you know, something. I thought, well, you know, what about Ernest Hemingway's miss, missing uh, fishing tackle in, in, in his big footlocker? That's a true story, you know. <laughs> and I decided, all right, I'll do that. So that was the, uh, that was the impetus behind that book. I love it. 
I love it. And that little story I told you is in the, is the preface to the book. Right. I love it. <laughs> I'll never be able to read the beginning of any of your novels the same way now that I know that they basically all come from truth. That's right. And in fact, that book, uh, the first, the first scene is a, a husband and wife, two hunters who shoot each other's horses in order to crawl in them and survive. That's true. When I was at Field and Stream, I interviewed a couple guys in southern Idaho, and they got caught in a whiteout storm, and they felt the only way they could survive was to shoot a horse and drive, get inside. But they didn't have the heart to shoot their own horses, so they shot each other's horses. They survived the night. In the morning, the guy crawled out from the carcass, and they could see their truck. No. Oh, God. That's really The bad. one guy wouldn't talk to me. He said, I, I just can't talk about it. But the other guy did. So that's a true story. And that was the beginning of that book. And uh, Crazy Mountain Kiss, I have a girl dying in a chimney. Well, that happened, too, just a few blocks from where I lived in California when I was a journalist. A man and a woman were arguing. Professional people, like a doctor and a lawyer. In other words, people who were grown up should have known better. The woman, the man wouldn't let the woman into the house to confront him. So she decided to crawl down the chimney. Meanwhile, he wasn't at home. He was away for three days. When he came back, there was something dripping in the chimney, and that was her. Oh, she was my dead. God. So I thought, I got to use that. So, <laughs> so a, a great many of my uh, scenes come from real life. You know? Wow. <laughs> well, <laughs> you have to be careful. You can't just you can't just wedge a story in there just because it's a good story. It's got to fit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, Keith, I can't thank you enough for making time to do this. Well, thank you very much, April. And it was great seeing you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. search for the one they call king but who will take his throne tune in to waypoint tv's battle for silver saturday may 18th from 12 to 6 p.m eastern presented by abyss battery waypoint tv don't miss mondays with into the blue brought to you by academy sports and outdoors every monday night from 7 to 10 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment